Thanks for joining us here at Temple Baptist Church in Centralia, Illinois, where we are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. If you would like to see other resources or learn more about our ministry, check out www.tbccentralia.com. Our hope and prayer is that through the following message, you are encouraged, blessed, and inspired to meet the Lord in a powerful way. All right, well, amen. Here we are in week five of the sermon series, Dysfunctional. If you haven't figured it out by now, every one of us should be able to raise our hand if you're asked, is your family dysfunctional? All right, can I get an amen? All right. So if, if uh, you know, one of the things I haven't done in a while is um, I haven't asked you guys for prayer requests. And so I would encourage you, every one of you have sitting in front of you a little card that says prayer request. If there is something that um, I and our staff can pray for you, I would encourage you, go ahead and fill one of those out today. And then on your way out, drop that in the um, offering plate as you uh, walk out the door. And then I would also say on the back side is a communication uh, card. If you're visiting here, I'd love to at least just send you a thank you letter for um, visiting with us. And if you would, if you've never filled one of these cards out, fill one out. And again, drop that off in the uh, offering plate. As you walk out the door, you'll see them sitting there on the table. Well, last week of Dysfunctional. You know, uh, week one, I, I really just did an introduction, and I introduced you to this concept of an unattainable truth and an undeserved grace. The unattainable truth is this, is to try to live out a New Testament functional family the way that God prescribed it. And once you realize you can't live up to that standard, you can either lower the standard and have a dysfunctional family or accept God's undeserved grace and continue to strive for that, that uh, functional family that he laid out for us. Well, in each week I gave you a word. In week one, the word was reality. Week two, the word is honor. And, and I gave you a question each week. And the question that you asked un, under honor was, what can I do to help? How can I leverage my power, my influence, my resources for somebody who needs it? That's what honor is all about. Well, then in week three, um, I talked about the word that no family is complete without, and that is the word conflict. And I asked you to ask this question, who is suffering because I am not getting my way? You know, that, that's, a, that's hard medicine right there. But it got worse. Week four, reconciliation. You know, very tough, tough concept. And the question that I asked you to ask yourself was, when can I give up trying? And I gave you the answer is when Jesus Christ gives up on you. So I'll let you figure out when that is. Well, today uh, the word is legacy. And the question, instead of waiting until the end to give you this question, I'm going to start off with this. If you're a note taker, you should write this question down. And that is this. What will reverberate from my life into the next generations? What will reverberate from my life into the next generations? You see, Western culture, when we think about family, we think about immediate family. We think about our sons and our daughters, and we might think about our parents. 
But in cultures around the world, they think a little differently, and especially in the Eastern culture where the Bible was written from, when they would talk about family, they would talk about the father and the father's father and the father's father's father. They would even, matter of fact, the, the Bible references um, the sin of one father reaching down to the third generation. So th- this concept of family goes deeper both directions, those before us and then those that are going to follow behind us. And I believe this, and, and I know it's certainly a fact in my life, and that is most of us have relatives that we did not know very well. But they had a major impact on our lives. You know, I think about uh, my dad's dad, my grandpa. He died when I was three years old. I, there's this one picture of me on his lap and he's holding me. I, I don't remember anything about him. But by the time today is finished, I'm going to share with you that there is a lot about me because of him. The, the person who I am, there are many things that I didn't realize. A, a man I didn't know personally. But yet he had a profound impact on my life. And one day, you will have kids if you don't already. And then the glorious day will appear when you have grandkids. Amen. And here's what's interesting is the decisions that you make today will impact the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. You see, your kids and your grandkids are going to tell their, the stories that you have a part in, whether directly or indirectly. So moms, dads, aunts, uncles, great uh, grandparents, grandparents, Today, I want you to remind us all that our actions don't merely speak louder than our words. Our actions will speak longer than our words. And I want to share with you a story from the Bible about a family. And I want to talk to you today about Joseph's dysfunctional family. You know, when we look at the Bible, there's not a lot of good examples of family. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. You know, it didn't take them very long, and Adam's blaming Eve, and Eve's blaming Adam, and, well, you know, here we are today. Um, so, so, well, let's look at their sons, Cain and Abel. Well, that didn't end well, did it? No, it didn't. But there was a guy whose name was uh, Abraham, and we'll talk a little bit about him, but here's what's the reality is our children, our grandchildren, they may forget what you say, but they'll never forget what you did. Those are what's going to be told in the stories about you when you're dead and gone. So today, stories about a dysfunctional family. This dysfunctional family is marred by deceit, by anger, by revenge. But I want to share with you that God turned it into a beautiful story. So let me tell you a little bit about Joseph's family tree. Joseph's family tree starts with Father Abraham. I remember as a little kid in in Sunday school, we would sing this song, Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. And then you had to like twist around in that song and sit down, stand up and jump. I don't know what all that was. But um, I love singing the song about Father Abraham. Abraham was the man that God chose to bring the Son of God into the world. Well, Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son, and his name was Jacob. And and Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those sons' name was Joseph. And really, that's the one I want to talk about today. But you see, that family tree is a little more complicated than what you see in front of you. Let me show you Joseph's dysfunctional family tree. 
Because in this family tree, Abraham had a wife and her name was Sarah. And God told Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have children that uh, were more than the sands of the sea. But one day Sarah got to an age where she was convinced she couldn't have any more children or children at all. Because at that point she had had none. And so they had this great ideal that they would give Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, to her husband. And and he would bear a child and and that would be the promise of God through this son. But what they didn't realize was God wasn't done with Abraham and Sarah. And so not only did they have a son from Hagar named Ishmael... But they had a son through Abraham and Sarah named Isaac. And today a lot of problems on the world stage are because of Isaac and Ishmael. Well, the dysfunctional family tree didn't just stop there. If you go down the next generation, Isaac had two sons to his wife, Rebekah. One son was named Jacob and the other's name was Esau. These were twin sons. Matter of fact, they were twin sons that were nothing like each other. And then if you look at the life of Jacob, you will see that Jacob had 12 sons and four different wives, two of them being sisters. Now, you want to talk about dysfunctional? Think about that. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He lived in a blended family with one father, four mothers, and they all lived in the same tent. Yeah, that's that's just asking for trouble, isn't it? And the Bible tells us that one of these wives was his favorite wife. And one of these sons was his favorite son. You guessed it, his name was Joseph. Well, Joseph was the favorite son. How do we know that? The Bible tells us. But there were actions that Jacob took that uh, demonstrated this. And one was he gave his son a coat of many colors. And so while all the other older brothers were off taking care of family business, Joseph was usually staying at home. And one time it just so happened that the brothers were all feeding, taking care of the flocks, and Jacob sent Joseph to go check on them because maybe they were up to no good. And what better than using the youngest brother to rat on the older brothers because they do it so well. And so uh, Joseph went to look for his brothers. He found out where they were, and they could see him coming a long way off. Why? Because his coat of many colors. And so here, they, here comes the brother and they just decided they were going to have a little bit of fun. And before it was all said and done, they decided it was going to be more than just fun. They are going to get rid of Joseph. They're going to kill Joseph. You Remember week two, I talked about the word honor. Well, in this case... They took honor and they they twisted it and they dishonored their brother. You see, they had the power. They had the resources. They had the ability to help Joseph. Instead, what did they do? They threw into a pit to leave him to die. And the oldest brother had a little bit of pity, hearing him wail and cry and scream, knowing that they were not bringing him back out. And they saw this caravan that was on its way to Egypt come by. And so they went over and made a deal with the, uh, the traders. And they sold their youngest brother, Joseph, Jacob's favorite, their least favorite. They sold him into slavery. So here he was, betrayed by his brothers. A 17-year-old young man sold as a slave. And now he's probably tied up with ropes and he's being pulled along behind a camel or who knows what. And the whole time you could probably hear him scream to his brothers, the joke's over. And yet the joke wasn't. 
And they kept going. And he got to Egypt. And then he was sold as a slave to another man named Potiphar. And Potiphar took uh, Joseph into his house and, and he found a young man who had a good head on his shoulders. And what did he do? He um, put him in charge of everything that he had. And years go by. Potiphar is very successful. Joseph is doing wonderful things in this role. He's still a slave. And there comes a time when Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph and, and sees much more than somebody who's taking care of her husband's business. She sees him as an opportunity. And so she preys on him, and Joseph ultimately has to flee, and his coat is ripped off of as he, he sneaks out, and she uses that same coat to indict him in front of Potiphar. And Potiphar has no choice but to send him to prison. And it's interesting, if you open up your Bibles to Genesis 39, in verse 21, the Word of God says this. And I would encourage you, um, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, and you don't own a copy of God's Word, I would tell you that right in front of you are Bibles. And you should pull one out. And if you open it up, and on the inside cover, it says these words, that if you don't own a copy of God's Word, take this one. If you walked in here today without a copy of God's Word, you shouldn't walk out. This is a ministry of our church that we want to do to provide for anybody that needs a copy. Well, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 39, verse 21, it says these words. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, this is just where you want to be with the Lord. I've heard that there's no better place to be than in the center of God's will. It's the safest place to be. And to see that uh, Joseph uh, was uh, given kindness by God and, and he was given favor by the prison warden. And the only problem with this scenario is that Joseph is in prison. And so many times, I think we're probably like Joseph, where we feel like we're in prison and we forget that God is with us. But here he is in prison, and, and God once again gives him the favor of the, the prison keeper, the warden. Well, it's a few years into this, there's two guys that happen to be sharing a cell with him, and one was the, the baker for the king, and one was the cupbearer for the king. And they both had dreams, and the dreams were bothered them. And so they're sitting around the lunch table, and they're telling about the dream that they had. And then Joseph shares with each of them what the dream is. And he shares with the cupbearer that um, your dream tells that, that in just a few days, the king's going to call you back and restore you to the role that you played. And the baker, he, he shared him with his dream, and he said, well, your dream's not quite the, the same. Uh, you're going to lose your head in just a few days. The baker lost his head. The cupbearer regained his job back. And the, the Bible tells us that these words were said by Jacob to, or Joseph to that person, the cupbearer. It says, don't forget about me when you're restored. Tell them that I'm here because somebody's forgotten about me. And well, here uh, Joseph um, gets forgotten by the cupbearer. He's betrayed one more time. He's left in prison, and the Bible tells us that two years goes by, and then Pharaoh 
has a dream. And nobody can tell him what the dream is. And then all of a sudden, the um, cupbearer wakes up and says, wait a second. I rem-, and he approaches the king. He says, king, I think I got a problem that, that can resolve your, your problem. He goes, what's that? He goes, well, you remember that time we weren't getting along and you threw me into the dungeon? He says, well, wh- no, no hard feelings. But while I was in the dungeon, uh, I met a young Hebrew boy and he told me what my dream was. Matter of fact, he told me that I was going to be restored to this position. And sure enough, King, you called me back out and, and I've been serving you faithfully ever since then. And so Pharaoh says, let me uh, hear from this young man. And so they go into the prisons and they, they bring Joseph out. They prepare him, get him ready to be, approach the king. And the Pharaoh shares his dream. And he talks about how that these um, seven fat cows come down and they're, they're feeding and they're drinking. And these seven skinny cows come down and eat them all up. And nobody can figure it out. Joseph, can you tell me what this means? And Joseph says, I can't tell you. He says, but my God can. You know, that was a very offense to Pharaoh because Pharaoh was considered a god himself. And yet Joseph reveals the dream and he says, Pharaoh, what this means is that there are going to be seven years of plenty. And then there are going to be seven years of famine. But Joseph doesn't stop there. He says, if I were you, Pharaoh, I'd get somebody, an administrator, and I'd put him in charge of this. And I would store up, I would tax the people, and I would get all the grain I can. I would store it up. And then the seven years of, uh, uh, there would be plenty for people to feed off of. And Pharaoh said, that's a great idea. Joseph, you're in charge. Now, everybody in his uh, court probably thought, oh, my goodness, what in the world? Don't you know where we just got this guy from? But he kept him. And Joseph did exactly that. And he went around in every city and he built big silos. And they started taxing the grain, a harvest like they'd never seen before in in that area. At this point, Joseph has been abandoned by his family for about 13 years. So now he's probably 30 years old. And Joseph, it says in Genesis chapter 42, verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who had sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And the Bible tells us that that was two years into the famine. And so here is uh, Joseph. He's now nine years since the time that he uh, was elevated to uh, second in command. Basically, he's 39 years old and he rules the world. And now he sees in front of him his brothers. The same brothers when he was 17 years old, 22 years earlier, sold him into slavery. There they were. The guys that were directly responsible for all his problems. The ones who sold him as a slave. The ones who had ultimately had him thrown into the prison. Even though they had nothing to do with Potiphar's wife, they were responsible for what Potiphar's wife had lied about to him. And there they are, laying, bowed down in front of him. And verse 7 says this, As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. I can just imagine Joseph was having this thought. Finally, 
Remember, he had been given a dream. And in the dream, he shared this with his brothers, one of the reasons why they hated him, that his brothers would bow down to him. Here, his dream had come true. Imagine what he had thought about. He thought about following that camel all the way to Egypt. He thought about what those shackles felt like. He thought about that empty feeling while he was in prison year after year. But then I want to share something with you. I believe that he remembers a story that he lived through. I believe that he remembers a story that he had been told about by his family and they had shared this story time and time and time again. And this story was about Uncle Esau. You remember that family, that dysfunctional family tree? And there was Jacob and there is Esau. And there's a little more to the story of Jacob and Esau. And let me just share that with you. Because I believe that that story answers the question to what happened with Joseph's story. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. And the Bible tells us that um, Esau was a skillful hunter. He was a man's man. And Jacob was a mama's boy. He worked in the kitchen. He was a really good cook. And about the time the brothers were 17 years old, Esau comes from the field. He's starving. He'd been out there for a long time. He comes in. He didn't have any success with the, uh, his hunt. And there his brother Jacob is fixing a pot of soup. And in desperation and with a little bit of rationalization, we see that Esau convinces himself. And, and could you imagine this? He comes in, he says, give me some of your soup. And, and very rarely did the younger brother have anything over the older brother, especially when the older brother was a man's man and, and you were a mama's boy. And yet here was that man's man, that brother that could squash you, begging for some soup. And as a younger brother, he did what any younger brother would do. And he thought, how could I take advantage of this situation? And so he, he probably told himself, you know what? I'm going to go big. Go big or go home, right? And, and so he started off the bidding with for his bowl of soup. He goes, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a bowl of soup for your birthright. And I don't know how desperate Esau must have been, but he was desperate enough that he said, okay. He gave up his right to be in the older brother. He gave up his right to more than half of what his father owned, and his father was a wealthy man. And through rationalization, he convinced himself. Matter of fact, I think the Bible says it this way, that, you know what, I'm going to die anyway, so why? What, what good is that birthright to me if I die? And so he accepted the bowl of soup, and he traded away his birthright. Well, years later, I believe they were about 40 years old at this time, and what happens is, that Jacob deceives Isaac. He betrays him. Esau's already been betrayed by his younger brother once when he convinced them to sell his birthright. And now here he is again about to be betrayed a second time. But this time they're 40 years old. They're not 17 years old. They don't have hormones to explain for why they were doing this stupid stuff. They're grown men. They're accountable for their decisions. And Isaac calls Esau in, and he tells Esau, I'm getting old, and I think I'm going to die soon. He says, would you go out and hunt and get some a game and bring it back and cook up a wonderful meal, and I'm going to give you the birthright. And so Esau left, and what Esau didn't know and what Isaac didn't know was that hiding behind the curtain, 
was their mother. And so she went and she got Jacob and she said, Jacob, your father's about to give away the birthright. Here's what I want you to do. And so she made a, one of Isaac's favorite meals. And then one of the goats that uh, she had used to make the meal, she took the skin and she put it on her son's arms. And so he walks in and with this soup, with this goat skin wrapped around his arms, and he deceives Isaac. Isaac's old and he's kind of blind and he's kind of disoriented and he's not quite sure, but you know what? It's the food tastes good. The hairy arms seem like the, what they're supposed to be. And he gives the blessing that would have gone to Esau, the older brother, to Jacob. I just want to share something with you. Remember in week one, I talked about the reality. And I gave you four different principles in the New Testament. And principle number one was this, husbands, love your wives. Principle number two was wives, submit to your husbands. Principle number three was kids, obey your parents. And principle number four was dads, don't embitter your children. Every one of those principles were broken by this family. You see, um, the wife wasn't very submissive when she went behind her own husband to trick him into giving the blessing to a different son. And Jacob wasn't obeying his parents, knowing that this was against all order, certainly against his father's desires. And Isaac has a little bit to do with this because of the way that he raised his family. Well, Genesis 27, 41 says these words. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing that his father had given him. Forty-year-old Esau is mad. He's steaming mad. And you learned in week three about conflict. James 4, 1 through 3 said this, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your own passions? You desire and you do not have. And so what do you do? You kill. Esau desired that birthright and he wasn't going to get it. And so what was he going to do? He was going to kill. Well, later on in that same verse in 27, Genesis 27, 41, it says this. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. He's going to let dad die. He's going to let the mourning period happen. And then he was going to go get retribution, not reconciliation. Their mom hears this, and she goes and tells Jacob, and Jacob runs. And he goes to his mom's side of the family and to Uncle Laban. Laban was her brother. And while he's there, he begins working for Laban, and he falls in love with one of Laban's daughters named Rebekah. And so when he approached Laban about marrying her, he said, well, if you'll work for me for seven years, I'll give her hand to you. So he worked for her for, or worked for him for seven years. And, and what happened was Laban deceived Jacob. He betrayed him. And underneath that veil was not Rebekah, but of Rebekah's older sister, Leah. And he was mad, but he couldn't do anything about it because he'd married her. And so he goes to Uncle, La or Uncle Laban, he complains, that what's up with this? And he says, I'll tell you what, if you'll work for me for another seven years, I will give you Rebekah. And so 14 years after he ran from Esau, 
he finally gets to marry Rebecca. Well, the family wasn't working out quite the way that they wanted because Leah was having kids left and right. She had six boys. And Rebecca wasn't happy with that. And so she gave her handmaiden so that there would be a son that would be attributed to her. And her handmaiden had two. And, and so Leah kind of got jealous because now her, she was not having boys anymore. So she one-ups them and, and says, well, you can have my handmaiden too. And so she has a couple of sons. And by now, Rebecca finally had a son, and his name was Joseph, the favorite son from the favorite wife. Well, Jacob, all during these years, these 14 years, he begins to prosper. Not only does he prosper with those 11 sons, but he prospers in his herds. He prospers in the, his house getting larger and larger. So at one point, Uncle Laban says, look, you've got to get out. You're becoming more powerful than I am, and I can't have that. You need to go. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 31 and verse 3, these words. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. There's only one relative that Jacob was worried about. And I will be with you. You know, last week I shared with you the concept of reconciliation. And, and reconciliation, it's a hard proposition. Because there's no guarantee in reconciliation. You can put yourself out there. You can do everything that God requires of you. And the other person not accept it. But here's the reality. That if you will take that step of reconciliation, no matter what they do, God will be with you. And so here we are, back to that family tree of Jacob and Esau. And the last time Jacob saw Esau, he knew these were the words that Esau said, and I'm going to kill my brother. And he knew that when God told him to go back, that that was probably the end of his lineage, the end of his family. Jacob was convinced that Esau was going to kill him and his sons, and that he was going to take his wives to be his wife. And not only that, but then he was going to get to enjoy all of those herds that he had tricked his father-in-law out of. He was going to enjoy those. And he was resolved because he couldn't stay with his father-in-law anymore. And Genesis 33, 1 says that Jacob, he went back to see his brother. And it says that Jacob looked up and there was Esau. Now listen to this. Coming with his 400 men. Yeah. You saw, Jacob saw a war party, not a welcoming party. Jacob saw a brother who was still mad. And later on in that verse, and it says that he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two female servants. Now think about this. This was the order that he did this. He put the two female servants up at the front with their four sons. And then a little bit further back, he put Leah and her six sons and then a little bit further back, he put Rachel and his favorite son, Joseph. Tells us that in verse 2. He put the female servants and their children in the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And I think his hope was that by the time he'd slaughtered all those animals and all those kids, that by the time he got to Joseph, that he might be tired of killing. And he might just have a conscience. 
and he might just let his favorite son and his favorite wife left alone. Well, the story doesn't end that way, my friends. In verse 3, it says this, He himself went on ahead, and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So he, he lined up all these, and they're spread out probably over 100 yards. And then he goes about 20 yards, and he falls down, and he bows to his brother. And then he go, picks himself up, and he goes another 10 yards, and he bows down. And he does this seven different times. And then if you go on into the rest of uh, in verse 4, it says this, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed, and they wept. You see, this is what Joseph remembered as his brothers are laying there, bowed down. He remembered that he's a young boy and that his dad had pretty much told him, you guys are going to die. And he remembered that Uncle Esau had mercy. And he remembered that Uncle Esau sought reconciliation, not revenge. You see, reconciliation was the legacy of Esau. It's the, he passed that down through Jacob, and he passed it down to Joseph, and now to Joseph's brothers who are right there, bowed down before their brother, not realizing that he could have them killed with just one word. And yet Joseph didn't do that. I believe that he remembered Uncle Esau. And he remembered how that he, him and his brothers should have died. I think the Holy Spirit came on him and told him what to do. And so the question is, what is your legacy going to be? And the reality is this, you are leaving a legacy. Whether a good one or a bad one. Every one of us here are leaving a legacy for the generations that follow us. And your actions will speak louder than your words. You can say it as much as you want, but they'll watch what you do. You can tell them to come to church, but if you don't go to church, they won't. You can tell them to not use curse words, but if you use them, they will. And whatever your legacy is, it's going to reverberate for generations to come. You, so, you see, it's just not about the here and now. It's just not about today. It's not even about the next 10 or 15 years. Your actions are going to echo for generations. 20, 40, 60 years. And the question each of us has to answer is what? What will my legacy echo from my life into the next generations? And I think about my family. I think about my grandpa Tabor. I've got a picture I want you to see. On the left there is my grandpa Tabor's headstone. And what it says, it says Ralph Wellington Tabor, Army veteran, World War II. And about 10 feet to the right is another headstone. And it says, Ralph Wellington Tabor, Army v veteran, Vietnam. And one day, I think there's going to be another headstone. And it's going to say, Ronnie Wayne Tabor, 
Air Force, Afghanistan. But you know, that's not the legacy that I believe that Grandpa Tabor left. You see, Grandpa Tabor left a legacy of generosity. When I go back and I hear stories about Mr. Tabor, that's what he was called. He owned a gas station, and I've been told by many that nobody ever showed up there without money that didn't leave with a full tank of gas. Nobody ever got stranded on the road and Mr. Tabor passed him by. I wasn't there for that. I didn't see that. I didn't know about that until I was in my 40s. But you know what? I knew about another Mr. Tabor. One I called Dad. I remember going to people's houses and fixing broken air conditioners, changing tires in the middle of the night. Dad get up and little Ronnie would be drug along with him. I remember my dad not passing people by that were broken down on the highway. Remember I told you that story about me and my dad in the truck? And how that here we were driving down to Mississippi. And I had this master plan how that I would solve all his financial problems. And he looked over and he said, you just want my money. And it crushed me. And what did I do with that relationship? I killed it. I quit visiting. I quit calling. The, the most generous man I knew in my life. And those simple words caused me to pull out of a relationship. You know, it's funny, just two weeks before, I think he'd given me like $10,000. I mean, if I was so concerned about his finances, what should I have done with that? Yeah, and I didn't. All I had were words. And then those words led to actions. And yet the spirit of generosity that flowed down through Grandpa Tabor into Ralph Tabor flew into... Ronnie Tabor. There's people here today that understand the generosity that I have in this room. There are people that you haven't met yet in Centralia that have experienced our generosity. And one of those is Carrie and I have just committed our lives to being able to be generous with our children. And we have been in an extravagant way. And I heard the legacy about eight weeks ago. Our oldest son, Colin, we're sitting around. I don't know what we were talking about. But he said these words. He goes, I hope when our boys are this age, we're able to help them out like mom and dad help us. I never met Grandpa Tabor, that I remember it, yet he left a legacy of generosity that went through his son to me, and now unto my sons. The question that each of us have to answer is this. What will echo from my life into the next generations? Because our actions do speak louder than our words. And they will speak longer. You see, today you have the great opportunity that you've never ever imagined. You can either 
make decisions now that will echo in a positive way into your future generations. Or you can respond to temptation in a way now that your children won't have to bear that same temptation as they grow older. Or you can learn to manage money now so that when your children are at an adult age, you're able to uh, help them when the time comes instead of help them get a loan. Or you can respond to a relationship crisis now and you can either get divorced or you can make reconciliation. You can ignore that family member for the next 10 years or you can swallow your pride. Because whether or not you know it, your children are watching. They might not be listening to you, but they're watching what you do. And don't be surprised if they make those same bad decisions because they saw you make them and they saw you survive from them. And no matter how many times you tell them between now and then, I wish I would have never done that, all they'll see is your actions. So if this is true, what should we do differently? If this is true, what do we need to change right now? If this is true, why wouldn't we want to change and live out the life that God has ordained? Why and why wouldn't we want to change as soon as possible? As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life. And we would love to continue with you on that journey. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, simply go to www.tbccentralia.com forward slash next. You see, here at TBCC, it's our mission to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ who walk by faith and not by sight.